Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week, we're joined by Mara Gay, New York Times editorial writer and MSNBC analyst. Today on Run Tell This, we get personal. Mara Gay opens up about her months-long battle with COVID, and we all share the ways this country's recent reckoning with race has changed how we view life and work. So I was saying I really like, I called you Scruffy, Wesley, but Scruff, I mean it as a compliment. You're like, I'll take it. You're doing like mountain man. Like, I like this quarantine look. I, I am. Well, because typically I have to do enough on camera stuff that I have to be presentable enough, which typically means groomed. Right. And since I don't have to do anything right now, I'm like, you know, my barber is texting me. He misses his heart you. Once a week. Like, hey, man, what's up? When are you coming in? And I'm like, I'll talk to you in January. <laughs> Is he texting you at two in the morning, like, you up? <laughs> <laughs> Just sending me Drake lyrics. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, Mara, we're so happy to have you here. <clears throat> I really appreciate you coming coming on and joining us. I've never met a black Mara. Wait, no, I that's mean, a lie. Mara Brockakil. But every other Mara I've met has been Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know that's why true. your parents chose that name for you? They liked Marcy, but that was my aunt's name. And Mara was like, and I like that more. I don't know. It wasn't like, I mean, it's biblical, but that wasn't the reason for them. What about you? Um, there was a Fijian man that, that I'm named after wow. because my parents were living in Fiji shortly before I was conceived. Cool. Um, but I have found that like the origins of the name, like I don't love them. Like it's, it, it was a, a river. Well, it's Hebrew for bitter. Right. Right. And then it's what it's, Ruth called herself after her whole family died. Yes. And then it's the the Buddhist term for temptations, i.e. the devil. Well, I will tell you uh, for when I'm in, in um, the devil. Um, my mom's family is Irish and in Gaelic, it actually means of the sea. So oh, I like that. Much my better. grandparents are happy well how are we going to distinguish like if someone wants to say that was a an amazingly intelligent insightful point mara how are we going to distinguish we will know because the mara that made the intelligent insightful point is guest mara host (laughs) host mara this is this is just what we do I'm talking bad about people. Um, so a little bit of news that I saw. That, so the president of Marvel Studios just announced recently that they are not going to recast T'Challa. So they won't. there will never be another T'Challa um, out of respect and admiration for Chadwick Boseman. So now there's a lot of debate as to who's going to play the new Black Panther. Who is the new Black Panther going to be? Any any t- any votes on that? I have no idea who it's going to be, but it, it should be a, it should be a black woman. It should be one of the one of the um black women co-leads from the first film i think is the only appropriate like they were the the greatest warriors in the movie aside from t'challa were the women and it would then you know the only other person in his bloodline would have been this would have been the sister um so i just don't I mean, now of course it, 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 it marvel has all kinds of ways of of taking this in and you know going in a different direction than the storyline, but I just think that in the time that we're in, and I think just for the purposes of take of making the story, the only way I think to make that movie, to move the franchise forward 
in a way that would be even more entertaining and would and would generate more hype than the first movie would be to make a black woman the lead. I think that that's just the way to go. I just I would like love to see some young new talent, um, just be a part of it um, as well. Um, that's the tradition that that this um, that this series has kind of given us. I live um, not that far from. Um, the uh, the Black Theater in Brooklyn. Is it called the it. Black Theater? It's not called that um, like on the front, but it no. is the Black Movie Theater in Brooklyn. And, um, you know, if, you know when, the, when Black Panther came out, there was literally a red carpet and watching people roll up wearing their Sunday best and then some was uh, like one of the last truly happy pre-pandemic memories I have. And so I'm kind of just excited about seeing that tradition continue. I remember I went to like one of the premieres of Black Panther in DC and it was just like an experience, you know, packed theater, um, just ha everyone having the time of their life. And I just, I, it was a movie I really, really enjoyed and kind of what came with it. You know, I agree. I think, it's, what is it, Letitia Wright who played uh, Shuri, his younger sister. I think that could be, you know, amazing or interesting or like Mara said, someone who we couldn't name right now, right? Some Someone we're not thinking of. You know, what was, what was great, I think, about that was when you look at that film, you run down the cast, and then a lot of A-list talent, but also had a lot of black famous A-list talent, right? Like Forrest Whitaker's in it, Sterling K. Brown's in it, right? People who we all know, but we know don't necessarily get, you know, like don't necessarily get the same um, attention elsewhere, right? Or, or aren't as mainstream. And so, you know, it was kind of one of those kind of black ensemble movies. And I thought that really worked for kind of what it was doing. And so... I think a ton of people could fit into it, um, but I'll always think of Chadwick in that role, um, and and so I think it, it makes sense that they're not bringing anyone else, you know, into his character. I just love the fact that the film was unabashedly for um, and about and by Black people, even though it was, you know, for wider audiences as well. But just that we got to be treated as enough of an audience to make a film for was such a landmark. I also think that the thing about Black Panther was that they created, it wasn't just a movie, it, they created this world, right? So in order to, in order to have T'Challa, in order to have Black Panther, in order to have the Black superhero, you had to have Wakanda. And Wakanda exists not just as, a, as the background, as a, as a location, Wakanda existed as this changed frame of reference for how we looked at world power, how we looked at the, how we looked at at what the world is, and how and how you know power exists, and and who gets to exercise it, and who controls resources, and all and all of those things. This movie is not just about seeing a superhero running through the streets of New York. No, this is about like completely changing the balance of global power on the basis of who controls resources um well my vote is actually for um i would love to see a black woman in that role i really would but shuri the woman who plays shuri is acting up on social media she shared an anti-vax video so she yeah. questioned whether people should take the COVID 19 um vaccine 
All right, yeah, uh, she can't be Black Panther. So you can't be. You can't. Like, Black <laughs> Panther can't be an anti-vaxxer. Can we get into that? Like, um, I, I, I want to ruin your your rundown, Mario. No, no, like, no. You, this you, is, this is what you do. Oh, this is I, what you do. Let's it, it, do it. Yes, Let's I'm, blow I'm, it up. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm a ruiner. <laughs> I'm I'm not for, for the last few weeks. We have been we, we've had some kind of conversation about anti-vaxxers, specifically Black anti-vaxxers, and so I've run into this a couple of times among. It's just just among either people I know or just people stuff that pops up in my in my timeline, and now the vaccine is here, and the first person to get it in the United States was a, was a black woman administered Queens. by a black woman administered by by a black woman, and I'm just worried about what the response is gonna be to that. I I I feared when I saw. Uh, the, the former president, the living former presidents, Clinton, uh, Obama, and, and Bush come out and say, like, we're going to do our our vaccine publicly. My response to that was, I don't know if that's going to work. Because the people who are going to watch Clinton, Bush, and Obama take the vaccine aren't the people who are going to, who need to be convinced. The people who need to be convinced are going to be the people who are going to watch three former presidents and go, see, that's, I don't trust the government anyway. I don't trust the- This is the problem. You're totally right because like every conspiracy theory, there's always some kernel of truth mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. it begins with, right? So you have the Tuskegee experiment, which by the way is totally different than what's going on here, Correct. right? Because you had black men who were literally not being given treatment for sickness. Well, a lot of people don't even, a lot of people um, who, sh who share, who buy into the conspiracy theory of like, oh, this is gonna be just like the Tuskegee experiment. When you start to get go down the rabbit hole with them, they don't even know what the T Tuskegee experiment is. The first thing that comes out, a lot of people's about to go, oh, Tuskegee experiment, they were, they were given black men syphilis. No, they weren't given black men syphilis. This was black men who already had syphilis, who came, who, who expected to be treated and then were not, and they were, and were used as, as the control group for a broader experiment to understand it. But again, talking to people who got D's in science and probably F's in history is not a helpful place to start to have those discussions. Yeah, it's also, it's also frustrating because I think it really tracks um, with the kind of response to disinformation that you see from Trump voters, just in the, in the way it plays, which is to say, it's not so much about what the information is that you're getting, good or bad, it's about who's giving it to you. So if it's coming from someone you trust, a preacher, a parent, a kid, or a friend on Facebook, then you trust it, no matter what they say. But if it's coming from a government that you don't trust, even if it's the truth, then you're just going to shut that out. And I think given where we are nationally, we would be crazy to think that Black people would be immune from that same virus, you know, no pun intended, truly, because um, that's what we're dealing with. But it's it's frustrating because, you know, black people, brown people are dying at such high rates still from COVID. So I just hope that we can get the right people, just community leaders to come out. You know, we don't really necessarily, I mean, maybe the president, Barack Obama can help, but so can, I don't know, so can somebody who you trust who's in your own community, your teachers, whatever it is. Like, we need to get those people out in every community, I think. Um, so... Well, Mara, I would love to hear hear a little bit about your experience with COVID because, I, you know, I followed it through um, what you wrote for the New York Times, but also, you know, you post about it on Twitter quite often. Wes had COVID and it was 
by his accounts, very mild, but you've had the exact opposite and you're young, extremely healthy, very fit. What has your COVID journey been like? You can tell I'm still coughing now. Um, I got sick April 17th and started out just with a mild fever. And then the next day I woke up, fever was gone. I went to sit up in bed and I couldn't breathe. Um, I just had like tar in my lungs. Um, I couldn't get a deep breath unless I was on all fours, like went to the emergency room and there was nothing they could do for me at the time. They didn't even have a COVID test to give me. They just saw that my oxygen was still high, even though I, I obviously had pneumonia and COVID and, um, was struggling to breathe. And so they sent me home and told me that if my oxygen dipped down and got worse, I should come back to come on a ventilator is basically what they told me. Um, so I spent, you know, the first three, four months sleeping on my stomach every night on the couch. You said three, four months, not three, four weeks. No months. Um, I had double pneumonia. Uh, so pneumonia in both lungs. Um, it took me like a good month to be able to walk a mile. Um, you know, I live in a fifth floor walk up. I was 33 when I got sick. I'm a runner, never smoked, never had asthma, didn't have any pre-existing conditions whatsoever. Um, had been running many miles a day before I got sick. Um, you know, thank God I never crashed, which a lot of people did. Um, never crashed. So my oxygen What do you mean by high. crashed? So what happens is days seven through 10, you either start getting better, even if you don't fully recover yet, right? Or you crash and that could mean your organs start to shut down, your lungs fill with fluid. And that's the people that we see on ventilators. That's kind of the trajectory that they've taken. Um, that didn't happen to me, thank God. So, uh, but I, I just, I've been, full, I've been recovering ever since basically. So, so. so you're you, all, of, everything that you just said sounds terrible. It's like, it sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> It is a nightmare. You can't, yeah. you can't, you're, you're a perfectly healthy person. You can't sit up in, 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 you can't sit up in bed. You can't take a breath. You got to be on all fours to, to, to breathe. The hospital can't or, or won't treat you. And that is the experience of someone who didn't crash. That's what it's like if you, if you're, if you're lucky. I mean, that's, yes. that's what it's like. Yeah. I, I, this is why I say to people, you don't know how your body is going to react. You are rolling the dice. You could be completely fine, but you could give it to your neighbor and kill them or your parent, or you could be one of these long haulers they call us, which I don't know about labels. I mean, we're all getting better. I'm healing, I'm running, I'm working. Um, I'm expected to make a full recovery, but I'm in pulmonary rehab twice a week. I'm doing yoga every day. I'm uh, breathing exercises, steroids, herbs. Like, I mean, it's it's a whole it's a whole second job, and it's like the battle of my life. Um, I've gained so much compassion for uh, what people have gone through, and also just you know, um, it's amazing how fragile and how resilient the body can be. And, you know, when I, I mean, the news is very triggering for me, um, which is difficult in my line of work, but, but um, uh, you know, 
losing over 300,000 Americans, I just have um, such gratitude for just surviving and the fact that I'm getting my life back. Um, so I, I just, yeah, it's a cautionary tale, but it's also just, I think about really thinking about one another and the, the impact that you can, we can have on, on each other, good or bad. Um, so every time I see someone without a mask, I think about that. You know, I want to wear a button. It's like, ask me, <laughs> you know? ask me, wear a mask, ask me why. <laughs> well, does it make you angry? Like when you see these videos of people who are saying this isn't real? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of anger that I probably haven't really fully processed yet because most of my energy has been toward healing and um, hopefully just still doing my job in a way that, you know, supports vulnerable people, which is what I'm passionate about. But yes, of course, it makes me angry. Um, but I do try and remember that it's really a hard time for everybody. And I, I think some of the denial, not all of it. Some people are just jerks um, and selfish. But some of the denial, I think, comes from a place of deep fear of just um, not able to, pro people are not able to process, I think, the kind of threat that they're up against and just how scary everything is. And so their reaction sometimes is to just pretend like things are normal. And that there's no excuse for that, but I, I do think it's a human response. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm sh certainly angry. I think one thing that really frustrated me was, uh, or really enraged me, frankly, was seeing people like Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, take no responsibility for, uh, I think, the deaths that he and the president and others have caused by uh, pretending that this is a hoax or that it's something that only happens to black people and brown people. Um, and then they go and take the treatment that none of us could get or still can get. Um, and then you see them healed walking around a few days later. Um, that was pretty hard to take, uh, knowing what I went through and what so many other people went through. I have a lot of like survivor's guilt too. I don't know if guilt is the word, but it's like when you survive something that killed 300,000 fellow Americans, including people I know, um, you feel sometimes a certain responsibility to speak for them as much as you can. And so seeing some of the people that we cover uh, treat those Americans that way, like they were nothing, their lives were nothing, that makes me uh, very angry, <laughs> very angry. December 14th um, was a really historic day just by chance that it was the day the first COVID vaccine was administered in the United States. And it also was the day that the Electoral College certified the presidential results, which led to finally acknowledgement from some Republicans, um, but most notably Mitch McConnell. Um, it led to congratulations from Vladimir Putin. So we're, we're so thrilled about that. <laughs> um, so, so when you have a day like that, where you see the vaccine, um, Mara, do you feel like it's the beginning of, and I should also mention, you know, you're, you're on the New York Times editorial board. You guys wrote a scathing editorial against the president in October, um, begging the nation to end our national crisis on election day. So do you feel that those two events converging marks the beginning of a brighter chapter in our country's history? Are you hopeful? Uh, yes, yes. I'm an optimist, so... I have to full disclaimer, but yeah, I think 
nothing is guaranteed. Um, and so with the election, the vaccine for me, that, that is we live to fight another day. And um, I think that we have to kind of bend that moral arc of the universe um, that requires real work. And so my hope is that the kind of energy that we've seen in the past four years and especially the past year um, in communities of color and also among uh, white Americans too, just, you know, especially in cities, but, but all over the country, the kind of energy around healthcare, around um, protesting in the streets for black lives, black bodies, um, that we're gonna see that continue um, and really become something where uh, voters are also thinking about local elections and judges and DAs and really holding power to account of each party. Like, I think it's possible. I really believe that we can do that. I don't think it's guaranteed. I think we have dark days ahead of us. I'm really afraid that we have a large contingent of Americans who is, you know, in just a completely other alternate universe. Well, they're being called a cult now, which to me is probably one of the most accurate descriptions I've heard because they have this leader and they're completely divorced from reality and they have this otherworldly devotion to their leader, even in the face of death. They're choosing him over protecting their lives, Wes. Yeah. I think about this all the time. I think I've said this on here before, right? But the you know, the coronavirus in a lot of ways was a mirror uh, held up to our society and it it didn't uh, it took advantage of our vulnerabilities and our faults it didn't create them right the coronavirus isn't racist it wasn't trying to kill black people it was that black people happen to be uniquely vulnerable in our society right and i think that that's true not just in terms of the medical but it's true across the board right coronavirus is taking advantage of the fact that as a whole, we are not a particularly civically engaged, trusting, selfless <laughs> citizenry, right? And and that's not to say, and I don't mean that, like I don't mean that to sound as negative and cynical as it might, but th it's just the reality about who we are as a society that we can't get people to wear masks when they go visit their their relatives. <laughs> And have them killing those relatives, right? That we have shown kind of time and time again what we're willing to do and what we're not. That does sit in sharp contrast with some other countries and other regions, other nations. Um, but the idea that coronavirus wasn't just taking uh, advantage of the vulnerabilities within our, our healthcare system and our state of public health, it was taking advantage of all of these other issues within, be it education, be it health, be it our trust or lack of trust for uh, our leaders, the competency or lack thereof of our leaders, right? The issues with our federal and state governments, right? The fact that you could have 50 states making different decisions about how to deal with a virus that and other nations didn't have to deal with that level of bureaucracy. And so again, I, I think that a lot of ways these things that happen to us hold a mirror up to our society. And the question becomes, one, given what we see in that mirror, how do we triage this and try to actually get through and secondarily maybe raising some questions about when there's not a global pandemic <laughs> what, what the things we need to be doing to make sure that when one shows up we're equipped for something like this you know one of the things that i've said about this about the impact of the virus and what the virus says about our larger um our larger society is that you know trump 
has has made the 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 racist put the racist label of, of you know this is the China virus and and you know trying to essentially signal to his followers that this was a thing that uh, that you know China did to disrupt our society and some in 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 a in a way he's correct that this was a this was a thing that came from a faraway place that disrupted our society uh in in some in all of the ways that West talked about but it more mirrors the the interesting thing about it is it more mirrors if if it were going to be a country that did this it would be more like Russia like the corona like the the, the pandemic actually achieved everything that Vladimir Putin's Russia has been trying to achieve through their interference in our in our politics and in our cultural discussions for about the last decade, right? That everything that we everything that we know, everything about America that American intelligence tells us about Russian interference, not only in the election, but the but Russian uh Russian Russian bots, Russian troll farms, um, all of these things that that have, you know, kind of hijacked discussions through social media um and kind of derailed public discourse to the extent that it wasn't de derailed already all of those things were designed to do exactly what the virus is doing it was designed to expose these fissures of race and class and inequity and to and to magnify them in a way that they could be exploited to the to the to the political gain of a of a foreign actor it just so happened that the foreign actor wasn't a nation state it was a nameless faceless you know, microorganism that started killing people. Um, I don't think that that you know, as head of the KGB, that Putin that in, in, in that Putin could have could have been that Russian intelligence could have designed something better. When you talk about it being a mirror, you know, it has taught me a lot about this country. And what has shocked me is I always felt that there was a limit to kind of uh, the protection of white supremacy and white privilege. And that when it came down to it, an individual would protect their own life and the life of their families before they would protect the system. And what I have seen en masse from so many white Americans is that they are putting the system, protection of the system, protection of white supremacy, protection of their privilege above their own personal lives. And that is really scary because that shows me that this is much worse than I even realized, that they think that this is, whether they can articulate it specifically and whether they actually know that this is what they are doing, they have made it clear that preservation of the system is more important than preservation of their own lives and their own families' lives. And that is deep. That is, that's the heart of it for me, Mara, which is, um, this is what James Baldwin talked about, right? Which is you sell your soul and your humanity and your humanness to become, just to have whiteness. I would, I would challenge you guys to look at this in a little bit of a different way. The premise of it is, it's a, they believe it to be about the preservation of life. That's why the response is the auto response to Black Lives Matter. Black, when you say Black Lives Matter, of course, it doesn't mean that white people's lives don't, don't, don't matter, right? It doesn't mean like I'm hungry doesn't mean you don't get to eat. But the, but the knee jerk response to Black Lives Matter is always, no, 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 all lives matter. No, 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 because to challenge, to, pre to present the fact that our lives matter that black that specifically black lives matter it is to challenge the system that says in order for our lives to matter those lives have to not 
Wes, what do you think we're going to take from this time? You know, I think it's going to be interesting. You know, one thing I, I was just watching yesterday, there's a new um, Showtime series on, on the Reagans. Um, it's a four-part series that looks back at their legacy and the and the figures. And the, and the series makes the argument in the subtext that Reagan was in many ways uh, Trump's John the Baptist, that they ran the same campaigns, that they had very similar, that, look, these were that Reagan had played the cowboy and the, and the military person in movies. And then also they argue that Reagan's public persona was basically all an act. No one actually knew Ronald Reagan. He was just cosplaying what he thought uh, Americans would be attracted to. Um, and in many ways, I mean, that is very similar to Donald Trump, who um, has cosplayed a billionaire in, our, in public right. for a very long time, <laughs> right? Who uh, and, and so... Yeah, where there's a bluster to it that is not actually belied by facts and, and grounding. Uh, but then also looking at Reagan's role um, in terms of being divisive on issues of race and also out of touch on economic issues. Uh, you know, re buying new White House China on the same day they cut food stamps. Uh, and, and the... And it was interesting, right? Because as you look at that, I mean, I think that was the most critical thing I've ever watched on Reagan. I think Reagan in our popular culture and narrative, I mean, not like liberals like him, uh, but he is someone who, you know, 50% of the country says this person is Jesus, even if the other 50%, you know, it ends up shaking out, right? And that was the first time that I'd ever seen Reagan framed almost as like a failed presidency. But the reason I say all that is because it, legacy is very much up to ongoing interpretation. And what I mean by that is that it's going to take time for us to more fully understand the gravity of these moments, even as we understood some of them in real time. Uh, and also, there's going to be a political party that remains powerful in this nation and will remain powerful uh, adamantly against an accurate description of the legacy of these last four years. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, coronavirus and the handling has been uh, objectively lacking across the board and, and much less the the public leadership related to talking about public health and the needs and communication. But I don't think we can forget things like the child separations at the border, for example, which I actually think we'll look back at as one of our lowest collective moments. Um Historically, uh, that there were so many points about this moment and this era. But what's also true is that I think it'll continue to be fought about internally. I mean, it Mara, how do you think we're going to look back at at the Trump years? Well, um, I have to say I agree with Wes. It's certainly going to be an ongoing conversation. But while it's undeniable that the larger story of the mainstreaming of fascism and anti-democratic tradition in this country is just a great tragedy from which I hope we will recover from. I believe we can, but that's a very scary force to try and put back in the bottle. That's, that's a large narrative, but there are some good news stories. I think um, one of those I believe is uh, the fact that this has been a moment I think for quite, quite a few white Americans, um, a moment of real self-reflection, of shock, of um, 
new realizations about what, where this country can go, what it's really about, uh, what it hasn't lived up to. Um, and I, I wouldn't discount that. I think that there are a lot of white Americans who um, really had no idea how bad things could get or how ugly the face of white supremacy really could be and how present it still is. Um, you know, can we take that to the bank? I don't know, you gotta build a movement, right? But, but I, that's very interesting to me. And I think even more than that for me personally, seeing, I don't even have the language to describe it yet, but seeing the Americanization, the ongoing Americanization of people of color in this country is such a beautiful thing. So thinking about the videos that we saw of the Hispanic voters for Biden who came on their horses um, out west. I love that. There was a video of them in Nevada. Um, the Native Americans, the tribes who came out, and I get emotional thinking about this. You can hear me now. Um, just because, you know, those are the groups, the black women in Georgia who helped save this country again. And um, sorry, it's, um, it's actually like a happy thing because uh, the idea is that we're trying to grow this experiment and that um, the American experiment uh, needs everybody. I experienced that firsthand very much. Like this, <clears throat> these last few years have changed me because I placed assimilation at such a high value in my life. Unknowingly, my one of my top priorities in life was don't make white people uncomfortable. Don't remind them too much that you're black. I wasn't running from my blackness, right? And of course, it's clear to me that everybody can see I'm black, but don't be too black in front of white people because it makes them uncomfortable. And know what makes them comfortable. Know what they like, know what they listen to, know what they watch so that you can engage in those conversations. And I wasn't aware of how much of my life was about the comfort of white people until some of these conversations started happening. And it exposed those things to myself. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And now I'm like, fuck that, I'm gonna be me. And if it makes you uncomfortable, that's your problem because this America is my America as much as it is yours. I have every right to exist here as much as you do. I have every right to take up space as much as you do. And there's no going back from that. And I think um, a lot of people have had that experience. I love I, I love that you say that, Mara, because that's I've been saying this all year, feeling that way. It's I've had the same realization, and I um, the thing that keeps popping up for me is you're a young professional woman of color, and you're constantly wondering what is going to get you that invitation to the table to sit at the table, what is going to make you acceptable to sit at the table. And the table being the country in this instance, we're talking about our democracy here. But then you have this realization, as I did this year, that uh, that invitation is not anybody else's to give because this is our country and you belong to it as much in five minutes as you do in my family's case. We have been here since before it was an actual country. Uh, so I don't need an invitation. For people, people of color, people, immigrants who are refugees, who are of, different sexual orientations, right? There's always a sense when you're in a minority group of trying to figure out how to, in some ways, take a target off of your back, 
right? How to be successful, how to blend in to some capacity, not to, and somebody's trying to like inoculate your inoculate yourself from the potential for discrimination by being acceptable and being, and it's and it's hard. And I think that we all, all of us in these spaces, I mean, all of us are in media spaces and have all worked in mainstream spaces that we know are majority white, right? Um, and it's this, the sense that, you know, it's the trade-off, it's the push and pull. And I, and I think for a lot of us, we do come to this kind of realization point. It can be prompted by any number of different things that no matter how high you jump or fast you run or what rules you play by, you could still end up, you know, it's a, it's a gate. You never reach the finish line of it. They're never like, all right, you are assimilated. You're one of us now. You can be yourself and do it. There's always going to be a new thing. And I, and I think that, uh, and so it is really important. And I do think that across the country, we've seen in a lot of different spaces, people kind of hit that point or like, I'm going to be who I am. I'm not going to play by these rules anymore. And that is one of the things that happens to, to many of us in the, in these spaces. It doesn't become about your performance and it doesn't become about your acumen and it doesn't become about your education. It, become, it becomes about when they look around the room and decide who they want to tap, they make they they meaning those who are who are in positions to do to do such a thing, make decisions based not just on the merits but on these other things, these other conversations, these other things that are happening just below the surface. I feel like it's changing and I see it changing in ways that makes me very, very happy. So like Mara, I had texted Keith and Wesley a photo. Did you see the photo of the new mayor of Baltimore? His his official mayoral photo with the afro and the edged up. I mean, we used to call it a temper tape when I was in high school. I don't know if they still call it that, but like and I felt like that was a decision he made to be himself and to present as he wanted to in his official photo. This wasn't just any photo. This is the photo that they're going to have hanging up in government buildings. You know, I've seen it with, and, and I love her for this. Nicole Hannah-Jones talks often about respectability politics and how she's not playing that game. And that's why she's going to look the way she wants to look. She has responded many times publicly to criticism about her hair being unprofessional, yada, yada, yada. And she's like, look at my work and then come talk to me about being unprofessional. So I feel like you have these people in very prominent positions who are now taking a stand and saying, no, I'm going to present the way I want to. And you're going to judge me by my output. It's hard, though, because I think even with someone like Brandon Scott, the incoming mayor of Baltimore, or Nicole, who's a friend of ours, or other folks, right? It's I, I feel like we're still in a space where there's such a small bucket of people who can pull that off and who can do that. Right. And that the thing that where people get hurt is downstream where I can walk into the newsroom and do and say a certain thing. And I, I very famously wore like children's clothing to work when I worked at the Washington Post. I wore like T-shirts oh. every day. Like I was not getting dressed up for you people. I didn't <laughs> you care. You said children's like, clothing. I'm like, what? Oshkosh? Well, it's like, a you know, because uh, I, I have friends who would be like, you know, why don't you dress like an adult? And I was like, because I don't like ties. Like, I don't, like, I don't, it doesn't. Like, and, and I'm a reporter. I call people on the phone all day. I have to go to the Hill or something. I'll put on a jacket. But like it hasn't. But it was a sense. But it was always kind of this sense of right that I'm gonna show up and move the way I move and do the things I, I do. And you know, it's frankly, it's one of the things I really love about being in DC. I, I said before, I think I'm like a DC lifer. I love this city. Um, 
I have it, but part of it's that and a lot of times folks are like, what in the world are you talking about? And I was like, oh, you're talking about Washington. Like, I hate those people. I don't even hang out with them, right? <laughs> I live in my city, right? And it's a totally different world, right? And so, no, I don't don't spend much time at Georgetown parties. Not that I don't ever go to them or have friends who do, but, like, that's not my scene. Those aren't the people I want to spend time with. Um, and that, you know, I can report on politics. I don't want to spend all my time around political people. There is something about how do we challenge those paradigms and those expectations, even within big institutions or big places like that. A thing that happens is we're expected to not only assimilate and, and move into, into spaces where we may be uncomfortable, but in, but in lots of, of instances, moving to, into those spaces actually means putting yourself in a position to be to 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 be exposed to microaggressions and sometimes outright hostility. When I think about younger reporters, and especially younger black reporters, I'm actually really hopeful at this moment because I think that um, never have newsrooms needed us. Oh, they need them us more now. Than right now because it's this realization not just that uh, understanding racism and race is important, but actually that it's central to the American story and the political story that they are covering. Now, not everybody is there. I'll say this, I'll speak it very directly to any young journalists who, who might be who might be listening. Don't put yourself in a position to get played. And what I, what I mean by don't put yourself in a position to get played is this. Right now, Newsrooms all across the country are clamoring for the resumes of, of people who look like us, especially those who, who have proven that we have the we have the ability to, to, to do this job well, whether it's in front of a camera or a microphone or with a with a pen and paper in our hand. Um, and they're making phone calls and recruiting those people like crazy. But recruitment doesn't necessarily equate to advancement. Job placement doesn't necessarily equate to to. Uh, equitable either salaries, equitable compensation, equitable opportunity beyond the the initial um, hiring phase of the job that they that, that they bring you in to do. I just want people to know that like, look, get your money, get your job, get you get that line on your resume, get whatever it is that you that you need to get, but don't get got. Words of wisdom from Uncle Keith. <laughs> oh, can I show y'all the hoodie? Okay. I gotta show y'all the hoodie. So we've been talking about my my beloved. Pittsburgh Steelers, who up until two weeks ago were undefeated. And I just want y'all to know, because there's a lot of haters out there, and we got people, we got people on this podcast, co-hosts <laughs> on this podcast who are who are who are Baltimore Ravens fans and Cleveland and Cleveland Browns fans. You see all this? This is actually the Steelers logo made up of all of the names of Hall of Famers who played for this illustrious. Keith, if you think you're gonna <laughs> And y'all could and, and, and y'all could never have a, have a shirt like that. You if just you think that, that talking shit about sports is ever going to hurt my feelings, then you don't know me nearly as well as I thought you did. I just needed to get that off my chest. I've been carrying this around since they lost. Golf club. I, this could, couldn't help it. I needed to, I needed to vent and think, and I took my opportunity. Thank you very All much. All right, you guys. Thank you, uh, Mara. Thank you. I know we, we've kept you a lot, but this was a lot of fun. Um, you, we really appreciate it. This was a real treat, guys. And also, congratulations on the new podcast, Thank which is you. great. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.